This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, The Jimmy Dore Show, Grit TV with Laura Flanders, Comedian Lee Camp, Moyers and Company, and a segment of Best of the Left activism. And a quick thought for those who remember the movie The Never-Ending Story, I just figured out today the all-consuming nothing that threatens the whole world. It's clearly an allegory for capitalism. Let me juxtapose two things for you here. Robert Reich wrote this brilliant piece for the Huffington Post. This was uh, published, I think, yesterday. What is today? The 18th? It was the day before yesterday. Called The Myth of the Free Market and How to Make the Economy Work for Us. And I've been saying this for years. I mean, if you've been you know, a regular listener uh, to or, or viewer of this program, um, you probably can recite this in your sleep. But there is no such thing as a free market. It just plain old flat out doesn't exist. And Robert Reich comes right out and says that. You know, in fact, he says not only does a free market, well, first of all, he points out this, this, this meme that the right wing wants us to believe. Right? That the free market is infinite in its wisdom. The free market solves all problems. As he, as, to quote Robert Reich, our former labor secretary in the Clinton administration, the best cabinet officer of any presidency in I was going to say in my lifetime, but at least in since I've been a, an adult. He says, one of the most deceptive ideas continuously sounded by the right and their fathomless think tanks and media outlets is that the free market is natural and inevitable, existing outside and beyond government. And by this view, he says, if some people aren't paid enough to live on, markets determine they're not worth enough. If others rake in billions, they must be worth it. If millions of Americans are unemployed or their paychecks are shrinking or they work two or three part-time jobs, no idea what they're going to make next month or next week, hey, that's too bad. It's just the way the market works. Because the free market knows best. Right? And then Robert Reich, I mean, this is a guy's a real economist, right? He says, in reality, the free market is a bunch of rules about, one, what can be owned and traded? The genome, slaves, nuclear materials, babies, votes. So we regulate what can be traded and owned. Two, on what terms things can be traded. Equal access to the Internet, right to organize unions, corporate monopolies, how long patent protections last. Number three, under what conditions? Which drugs are legal to sell and which ones aren't? What about unsafe foods, deceptive Ponzi schemes, Uninsured derivatives, dangerous workplaces. Number four, what's private and what's public? Police, roads, clean air, clean water, health care, good schools, parks and playgrounds. And number five, how to pay for what? Do we pay for things with taxes, with users' fees, with individual pricing, and so on? He says these rules don't exist in nature. They're human creations. Governments don't intrude on free markets. Governments organize and maintain them. Markets aren't free of rules. The rules are what create the market. And then he goes on to say, you know, but the rich don't want you to know this. They want you to think that there's some sort of magical thing. I mean, in a recent column for the Wall Street Journal, Cypress Semiconductor President and CEO and rich guy T.J. Rogers tried to defend capitalists and in the process showed that he really doesn't understand how markets work at all. Roger's editorial was pretty much your standard right-wing talking point piece about how important so-called job creators are to the economy. 
Without rich people like him, he said, there would be no investors, no businesses, and no jobs. And therefore, raising taxes on rich people like him is counterproductive because it sucks away from capital from the people who can best use it. To prove his point, Rogers used his own example. He said, and this is what he wrote in the Wall Street Journal, he said, A couple of years ago, I decided to invest in my hometown of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, by building a $1.2 million lakefront restaurant. That restaurant permanently employs, now permanently employs 65 people at an investment of $18,000 per job, a figure consistent with U.S. small businesses. If progressive taxation in the name of fairness had taken my extra $1.2 million and spent it on a government stimulus program, would 65 jobs have been created? End of quote. Now, other than being one of the most stupid questions I've ever seen, even a rhetorical question in the Wall Street Journal, what Rogers is saying here is that he is responsible for the jobs created by his restaurant and that any attempt to raise taxes on wealthy individuals like him would take away the resources necessary to create jobs. And this kind of argument has become so common, so ingrained in the right-wing meme machine in the 32 years since Reagan took office that it's easy to forget how wrong it is. I mean, contrary to what Rogers claims in this Wall Street Journal piece, business owners don't create successful businesses or the jobs that they generate. Consumers do. If he had no customers in his restaurant, he wouldn't have a restaurant. Despite what you may hear from the talking heads on Fox so-called news and CNBC, economies are driven from the ground up, from the bottom up. They're run on demand by how much consumers actually want to buy goods or services. If a business doesn't meet an existing demand in the workplace, in the marketplace, or create demand through innovation, it won't succeed. It's that simple. I know this firsthand. Back in the 80s, Louise and I started a travel agency down in Atlanta. I, I didn't have a lot of cash. We'd been running a home for abused kids. I was pretty broke. So I used my $15,000 line of credit for my American Express card as our startup capital. I took a risk. And what made that risk turn into a $6 million a year business within three years and gave our travel agency an edge over its competitors is the same thing that gave T.J. Rogers' business an edge over his competitors. We met a demand in the marketplace. Unlike other travel agencies, ours identified a niche of smaller businesses or less frequent travelers to serve. The big travel agencies like American Express only wanted the, big, the business of the big corporations and the small travel agencies only wanted to sell cruises to rich people. There's nobody in our growing part of Atlanta who wanted the smaller business travelers. So we were ahead of the curve, and we were rewarded for it by both making a lot of money and having our business featured on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Although much of it happened after we sold that business in 1968, that little company we started on my $15,000 line of credit went on to sell over $250 million worth of travel. And then just three years ago, merged with a multi-billion dollar travel company. As long as our economy, unfortunately it was long after I sold it, as long as our economy is based on some sort of free market system, businesses are going to succeed or fail based on market demand for their services. And that's why T.J. Rogers' argument that wealthy people are responsible for the jobs their businesses create is crazy. Even if the government did tax him so highly that he couldn't use his own money to finance his restaurant, he could have taken out a lot of credit like, how, like the way we started our travel agency, like most small businesses do. And his restaurant still would have generated the jobs he brags about in his Wall Street Journal column. And it would have generated those jobs because it met a niche of demand in the Oshkosh, Wisconsin marketplace. The big secret that right-wingers like T.J. Rogers don't want you to know is that we don't need 
wealthy entrepreneurs like him to make businesses successful. Worker cooperatives can do it. Entrepreneurs can do it. People like me with a line of credit with American Express. And we started this radio show in my living room with nothing. This is how business should be done and can be done. So get this. So the Pope has started to push back on the a-hole image of Jesus that conservatives have been peddling since Reagan. Mainly that he's a gun-toting, toting, rugged individualist who sticks up for the rich. <laughs> That's the Jesus that they've, uh, right? Uh, and get this. I was uh, Noam Chomsky is actually weighed in on this one. And uh, I was reading an article where he said that uh, he, he referenced Vatican II. Mm-hmm. And liberation theology. Do you know what that is? Is everyone okay? What that? I don't is? really know what that is. So, it turns out that for the first three centuries of Christianity, that they were uh, killing a lot of Christians, <laughs> because it turns out that uh, Jesus's message is very radical. You know, it's very radical, just like it is today. It's a very radical message. So when the Pope says it, it ruffles a lot of feathers. And they were killing all of them for the first three. And then, and then. Um, the Roman Empire co-opted Christianity in the fourth century, and that's when they stopped killing the Christians, right? So, and the le- and this had a profound effect on the re- religious leaders in Latin America. According to Noam Chomsky, uh, the priests in Latin America would set up groups with Latin American peasants to read the Gospels and encourage them to demand more rights from the region's military dictatorships, which became known as liberation theology. He said liberation theology's practitioners were systematically martyred over more than 20 years by the United States-backed forces to prevent Latin American nations from installing socialist governments to benefit their own people rather than American interests. This is true, by the way. So whenever there was a government in South America that was on the brink of actually instituting liberation theology and helping the people, mm-hmm. the United States stepped right in, right? Sandinista, right? When, mm-hmm. Nicaragua, same. So, uh. That was back when, uh, when our Secretary of State was Pontius Pilate. <laughs> <laughs> According to Chomsky, the U.S. went to war and fought a bitter, brutal, violent war against the church. If we had a free press, that's the way they would present it, according to Chomsky. He said that the United States supported the overthrow of governments and institutions of neo-Nazi-style dictatorships. As part of the war that finally ended in 1989 with the murder of six Jesuits and two women at the University of Central America by Salvadorian troops. So Chomsky said those troops had received training by the United States. Uh, School of the Americas. Yes, very. you are correct. School of the Americas, which trained Latin American officers, killers, basically. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. So now Pope Francis is an Argentine Jesuit, and he's made symbolic gestures to welcome liberation theology back to the church after years of condemnations for its political aspirations Uh-oh. by Pope John Paul II and by Pope Benedict. So Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict down on liberation theology. Not very Jesus-like, those guys. He's saying all these things now, the Pope, right? And, well, what do you do when Jesus no longer supports your BS 
and you are revealed to for being a phony Christian by the world's number one Christian, hmm. right? What do you do? Well, you got to shit on Jesus as hard <laughs> as you can. <laughs> Revealing that, so, and by doing that, the conservatives revealed that Christianity is not really their life philosophy, philosophy as they have claimed, but really nothing more than a convenient tool to hide their horribly destructive and regressive policies, right? So here, I'll, I'll, here's a mashup that the, la the last word Lawrence O'Donnell show put together of the right wingers freaking out about the Pope sounding like a Christian. Folks, if I gave a speech on anti-capitalism, do you think I could be named Person of the Year by Time Magazine? Makes me nervous about the Pope, quite honestly. When the press runs to make him Time Magazine Man of the Year. You think Obama... Yeah, they'll never... Yeah. Rush, he is right, Rush Limbaugh. They'll, he'll never be Man of the Year. Although, he is a strong contender for Douchebag of the Century. <laughs> okay, there's a little bit more. He, he might be two Men of the Year. He, He's a big man. Geez, he <laughs> might be. Yes. I'm as upset that he didn't win the Man of the Year award from time. I mean, there, nobody outdoes him in anti-capitalism. The Pope himself spoke uh, about this at eloquent length. How can it be, he wrote, that it's not a news item when an elderly homeless person dies of exposure, but it is news when the stock market loses two points. Is the president citing the Pope, his new best friend? Because the Pope is ripping America. The Pope ripping capitalism. The Pope ripping Ronaldo's Magnus. The Pope ripping trickle-down economics. And Obama's having an orgasm. I'm a little concerned about um, who this Pope is. He's had some statements that, to me, sound kind of liberal. It has taken me aback. Yes. It's taken her aback. Almost as liberal as Jesus. Wow. <laughs> It's funny, though, uh, who knew the Pope would turn out to be just another limousine liberal? Am I right? Come on. It's, it, look, that damn Pope, Robert, is trying to steal Jesus from us by quoting things he actually said instead of the bullshit he's been saying he said. Right. Yeah, that's what they're saying. I, I, what happened? Because I, I remember about 30, 40 years ago, fairly religious people who were right-wing people would say things like you know things things are a little too commercial in terms yes. of christmas like we yes. need to, we need to pay attention yes. to the ideas behind it and somehow that's gone off the rails too what? how did that happen reagan and reagan, so when yeah. reagan ayn rand and this libertarian wing of the republican party that me that equates unbridled unregulated capitalism with jesus don't let that drag you down to make of the following. Philanthropy is enjoying a heyday. The nonprofit sector has never given away more, 316 billion in 2012, according to the Urban Institute. Meanwhile, governments in crisis and basic human services are being cut. Grid TV guest Peter Buffett thinks a lot about these topics. He's a musician and composer, but yes, he's also the son of Warren Buffett. 
With his wife, he heads up a foundation. But in July, he penned an op-ed with the provocative title, The Charitable Industrial Complex. And he wrote, as more lives and communities are destroyed by the system that creates vast amounts of wealth for the few, the more heroic it sounds to give back. It's what I would call conscience laundering. And that's why I wanted him and I to talk. Buffett's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Life is What You Make It. So welcome to Grit TV. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So I've called it philanthrofeudalism, but I like this uh, <laughs> charitable industrial complex. Thank what you. do you mean by it? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's a uh, system like so many others that have sort of, uh, I guess it's grown too big for its britches or something. <laughs> and I will say britches because it's mostly men. Um, but uh, it, it really seems like it's sort of folding in on itself and, you know, keeping itself alive as opposed to trying to put itself out of business. Uh, you know, much like the military industrial complex is certainly keeping itself alive as opposed to, you know, waging peace and figuring out how to put itself out of business. So all this charitable giving isn't making any difference? Well, I would say that on, uh, you know, philanthropy, first of all, means the love of people, right? So it has nothing to do with money. So on the personal scale, on the relationship side, on the community side, there's plenty of good happening and certainly plenty of well-meaning people, but as it gets into larger sums, uh, bigger egos, <laughs> uh, bigger rooms with more people in them, uh, it starts to disconnect itself, I think, from the very issues it's, it's, it's supposedly solving or helping or whatever. All right, yeah. so let's just pull back just a second and talk about how you got into this <laughs> mess. Just to recap, I mean, it says on the back of the book, um, the only thing, the only inheritance you really got from your father was a philosophy. Now, is right. that really true? Well, believe it or not, it it is, it was. So, first of all, I'd like to say that I just recently became Warren Buffett's son, right? Because <laughs> nobody cared, nobody knew. Uh, the last decade has been different for me. Uh, growing up in Omaha, the house I grew up in, uh, he still lives in to this day, uh, drives himself to the same office. Uh, that he did in 1963. Uh, I went to the uh, same schools my mother did, went to public school all the way through, had the same English teacher my mother had in high school. So very Midwestern upbringing. Nobody did know, including me, uh, what my dad did or that there was vast amounts of money piling up. We still don't really know. No, we still don't. I, I, that's true. It's, it's, a, it's a mystery, but he must be good at it, right? And um, so when I went off to college, I mean, I remember my dad literally saying, if your passion is collecting garbage, go for it. I will not love you any less than if you are a doctor. Now that's incredibly liberating and he meant it. You know, that's the other thing. I knew he wasn't just paying lip service to this or to the idea that you should find something you love. That's all I saw was that he loved what he did. Went off to college. My grandfather ended up, I learned when I was 19, leaving us uh, he left us a farm that my father sold, uh, and I got $90,000 of Berkshire Hathaway stock. And with that money, uh, I did what I thought was the smartest investment. I invested in myself. Yeah, you're right about it. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and gave myself time to learn my craft, which was uh, music making, and uh, went on and built my career and all that. Um, yes, there were lots of, of privileges, but it was really the privilege of having the parents I had. All right, so there was the 90000 when you were 19, but then in 1999, your father starts a foundation for each of his children, and right. you're one of them. Yep. And that foundation at that point, I think you say, had $10 million. That's right. The big headline came in 2000. 
2006, when right. suddenly those foundations received an injection of one billion, right. as one billion with a B. Right, with a B. As <laughs> your father started distributing his his uh, much of his of his fortune. Yeah. Um, talk about that and how you thought about being, quote-unquote, a philanthropist. Because by that point, after a lot of effort, you were actually pretty happy in the music world. Quite happy. You yeah, sort of exactly. found your identity. Yep. Um, yep. And then suddenly you're dealing with money again. Right. Yeah, thanks a lot. Right? <laughs> and, and it was this huge responsibility, huge opportunity, great show of trust, of course, of my dad, leaving myself and my brother and sister all a billion dollars to, to do something with charitably. Um, but thank God Jennifer, my wife, was also as passionate as I was about it because I was happy in, in my music career and I didn't know what this would do to it. But we had just recently moved to New York and what we knew is it was a fantastic place to be to learn. And we spent a couple of years after 2006 really listening to a lot of people and, and probably a hundred and some people came through the office in those two years. and. It was a master class in, in the givers and the getters, you know, what's going on, who's giving and why, how do they behave, all that. And, and so that was really what we did first, is try and learn as much as we could. And that's what you argued in your op-ed in the New York Times this summer, that we need to have philanthropy doing a better job of listening. Absolutely. What's going wrong? What's the specifics of what's wrong as you see it? Well, you know, I, I, I sort of hate to say it's wrong, misguided, you know, off the tracks a little, but not because there aren't well-meaning people, but it's because you get caught up. You know, one thing, for instance, is I say that when you have a billion-dollar foundation, you're better looking, your jokes are funnier, you're invited ever. So you start to get into this funhouse mirror world, and you can't get to the truth as easily because the money creates a dynamic that is really disastrous for real learning and uh, so what happens also is that you know people what's better than purpose in a paycheck right I mean you're out there doing good and you're making a living and that feels good but you certainly don't get up in the morning saying how can I lose my job and that's what you should be doing and so there's all these kind of built-in mechanisms around the money not creating an honest dialogue um, the feeling that you're doing something good in the world and and paying for food on the table makes you feel good and, and you don't really want that to end. And so there's sort of these intractable problems and there's others, but those are kind of major issues around why aren't things getting better and instead just sort of keeping all these things locked in place. You know, poverty, uh, hunger, the environment, education, health, all those things are, I see them as symptoms of this larger problem of nobody really wanting to get in there and blow some things up. I mean, let's be clear, the there is a relationship between the problems that government's facing and the amount of money in philanthropic circles. I saw a piece the other day about Mark Zuckerberg of, of Facebook mm -hmm. considering how to spend his $26 billion <laughs> uh, and he wants to put it into education. Right. And the biggest amount of money going into education is coming from us, 526 billion every year from taxpayers wow, right. just for pre-K. Right. Isn't government really the most important engine of this stuff? And if the accumulation of wealth is at the cost of being able to fund government, isn't that really where we have to start? That's a tough nut to crack because, of course, then if philanthropic dollars come in, then government says, oh, maybe we don't have to worry about this so much. And then they're not doing their job because, as you're saying, they should be the ones 
doing it. And then at the same time, you've got people with vast amounts of money controlling government ultimately too. So you've got this thing that circles around where you've got all sorts of money in government. You've got all sorts of money doing what government should be doing and, and people saying to government, pay attention to this as opposed to that. And, and then you've got an education system in particular that is based on an agrarian slash industrial model that's 150 years old that shouldn't be what it is now anyway. I mean, obviously technology is slowly shifting that and I think education 50 years from now will look very different than it does now. But you're, it gets back to this reform issue around who's responsible and, and, and how do you create the mechanisms to really make it happen? Because, yeah, charitable dollars not only are throwing money into education, but then saying, oh, that didn't work so well, I'll leave. You know, and then you've got this huge hole that they've created in terms of methodology and, uh, yeah. But didn't we create a system when we created graduated income tax? And you have governments that are elected with accountability to the people that decide how some of this money is spent. The philanthropists today want to not pay taxes, right. and shelter their money, but then well, control government, as Go you said, through yeah, campaign contributions. Yeah, yeah, and then play with it with charitable contributions. And yeah, the whole... It, um, it's a mess, yeah, and, and it all comes down to you know the money flow and how important the importance we place on that. And of course, being my father's son, that's such a fun area to get into. And I'm, you know, there's plenty of people smarter than I am in terms of alternatives, which is some of what we find at Novo. Like, how else can we look at money flow and 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 the money role plays in our society? Because uh, it's it's distorted beyond belief. We all know that. And it's how, how do you correct those distortions? Your father's spoken up for more taxation. And tax reform. A little bit and, uh, more. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, yep. And he's made the point of yep. the unfairness of our current tax burdens. Yep. Um, but isn't that really the point? I mean, Louis Brandeis wrote at the beginning of the century, the Supreme Court justice last century, that you can either have this sort of concentration of extreme wealth or democracy. You can't have both. Right. And isn't our situation directly related to the fact that these fortunes have been amassed? Isn't the amassing really kind of a problem? Well, yeah. I mean, I think Ralph Nader said if we had more justice, there'd be less charity, right? Yeah. And that's another way of saying the same thing is that if, and that's why in the op-ed I said I'm not calling for an end to capitalism, I'm calling for humanism. Well, if you really call for humanism, you are calling for That's what I thought when I read it. <laughs> I know. But I tried to kind of like get around that a little bit to raise the issue and say, well, what do you mean? And don't you mean that? You know, I wanted to get people talking about that spot because our system, I mean, you can't have unlimited growth. You can't have, you know, the, the concept of return on investment. A lot of these definitions have to be redefined. I mean, they have to be changed so that a return is something other than you know, whatever the percentage it might be or whatever the monetary return might be. I mean, we, we have to really look at how we're naming things and the, the system we're in. One of the responses to your op-eds, your op-ed was what really changes poverty is development. What really forces development or incapacitates development is taxation. Right. You, we cannot have the sort of socially improving projects that we need, houses, schools, and all the rest of it, right. while we have so many people seeking tax havens and right. you know, right. shelters in the Caribbean or right. elsewhere. Why not make that one of your campaigns? Well, you know, that's the tricky part with me. It is complex in some senses, uh, but maybe very simple in others. But taxation may be part of it. But... I'm one of these people that think that if you're 
using the word reform, you're still reacting to the system that's broken, you know, whether it's education reform, tax reform. And that doesn't mean maybe in the here and now we shouldn't move a few levers and, and, and create some, uh, some different metrics and all these various things that could shift behavior. But to really shift it, I think we have to look at the, the systemic nature of this, which is why, for instance, that the foundation were supporting girls and women and local economies and these various things that that I think something big has got to happen. I don't think it has to be cataclysmic or Armageddon-like, but we have to shift in a big way. And so reform to me um, is sort of a, a safe way to go about slow, incremental change that in the here and now, again, useful, but I don't think it's enough. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. Sometimes you can tell something is important or pivotal when it starts showing up in multiple and very different areas of life. Like, I imagine when the that's what she said plague started just taking over America. It was one thing when you heard it from a friend, but the moment you heard it from, like, your dentist, you knew it was something serious that wasn't going away easy. Okay, while I stick this tool in your mouth, this other thing is going to suck out the spit. That's what she said. <laughs> right? But no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't really work on that one, but you, you get the point. Well, there's a trend steadily spreading across disciplines, genres, and peoples. That trend is a call for revolt from the current system that will, without a shadow of a doubt, pillage this globe until there's nothing left. And according to my calculations, that nothing left moment is in February. So, we should get on that. This week alone, we've seen this call from a pop culture icon and from a scientific model, neither of which are the normal places you hear call for revolutionary change. In an article by Naomi Klein this week, she describes geophysicist Brad Werner's advanced computer model, which addresses, and these are his words, whether we're fucked. Apparently, in his computer model, Werner used system boundaries, perturbations, dissipation, attractors, and my old favorite, bifurcations, to come up with a complex systems theory. Now, if you were to ask me, I would say with great certainty that that dude made up those words. But apparently, they're, they're real words. 
So what did this computer model find? Well, to quote Naomi Klein, global capitalism has made the depletion of resources so rapid, convenient, and barrier-free that Earth-human systems are becoming dangerously unstable. When pressed as to whether we're fucked, Werner responded, more or less. Hmm, well, sounds like Professor Werner is not much fun to have at cocktail parties. He is off my list. He is, he is, he is off my list. I will replace him with fellow hairy comedian Russell Brand, who knows how to keep a party rocking. I'm pointing out that the You're current... calling for revolution. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm calling for change. I'm calling for genuine alternatives. The time is now. These movements are already occurring. It's happening everywhere. We're in a time where communication is instantaneous, and there are communities all over the world. Ah, shit. Et tu, Brandy? Oh, man, what the fuck? Well, at least Russell Brand sees some hope. You're probably wondering, does Mr. Science says we're fucked see any hope? Or is it just, is, is he just a negative Nancy? Yes, Warner said there was a single dynamic in the model that offered some hope against the terminal ransacking of Earth. That dynamic is resistance. Meaning, quote, groups of people who adopt a certain set of dynamics that does not fit within the capitalist culture, meaning environmental direct action, protest, blockades, and sabotage, unquote. Basically, when a profiteering greed monkey says, we're going to lay down some fracking pipe, people have to respond, that's what she said! <laughs> oh, just remember to also go fuck yourself. There's only three things you need to know to understand that getting to this tipping point was inevitable. Number one, our capitalist system requires infinite growth. Because of the, the, the ever-growing debt that is built in, it's built in, once our system stops growing, it falls apart. Number two, the system seeks profit over all else. It will never, ever move towards making a better world. It will only move towards profit. In the times where it has created a better world, it was a lucky side effect. In fact, corporations are legally obligated to seek profit. Legally, it's in the law. Nowhere in the law does it say, and uh, don't forget to look after the salmon. Yeah, the, the wild salmon. Look after those fellas, too. Number three, we have finite resources. The system cannot grow forever, but it has to. Just like a hot dog eating competition, the rules are keep eating. Even if there were no time limit, Eventually, you'd run out of hot dogs, but the rules would still say keep eating, so then you'd have to turn to your competitor and eat him. This moment we're now at, or almost at, was inevitable all along. Sure, if we had a bigger planet or shittier technology, it might have taken longer, but still, it was inevitable. And now, the we're fucked scientific model says we have exactly one chance of fighting back. Revolt. Big, small, physical, mental, revolt against profit, revolt against advertising, revolt against corporate news and consumerist amusement, revolt against a way of life that isn't working for almost anyone anymore. You can feel it in the air, everywhere, from the arts to the sciences to pop culture. It's in us. It's growing. And it feels so good. That's what she said.
very wise teacher once told us, if you want to change the world, change the metaphor. Then he gave us some of his favorite examples. You think of language differently, he said, if you think of words pregnant with celestial fire or words that weep and tears that speak. Of course, the heart doesn't physically separate into pieces when we lose someone we love, but a broken heart conveys the depth of loss. And if I say, you are the apple of my eye, you know how special you are in my sight. In other words, metaphors cleanse the lens of perception and give us a fresh take on reality, in other words. Recently, I read a book and saw a film that opened my eyes to see differently the crisis of our times. And the metaphor used by both was, believe it or not, zombies. You heard me right, zombies. More on the film later, but this is the book, Zombie Politics and Culture in the Age of Casino Capitalism. Talk about connecting the dots. Read this, and the headlines of the day will, I think, arrange themselves differently in your head threading together ideas and experiences to reveal a pattern. The skillful weaver is Henry Giroux, a scholar, teacher, and social critic with seemingly tireless energy and a broad range of interests. Here are just a few of his books. America's Education Deficit and the War on Youth, Twilight of the Social, Youth in a Suspect Society, Neoliberalism's War on Higher Education. Henry Giroux is the son of working-class parents in Rhode Island, who now holds the Global TV Network Chair in English and Cultural Studies at McMaster University in Canada. Henry Giroux, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. There is a great urgency in your recent books and in the essays you've been posting online, a fierce urgency, almost as if you are writing with the doomsday clock ticking. What accounts for that? Well, for me, democracy is too important to allow it to be undermined in a way in which every vital institution that matters, from the political process to the schools to the, to the inequalities, that, to the money being put into politics, I mean, all those things that make a democracy viable are in crisis. And the problem is... The crisis, while we recognize in many ways is associated with increasingly with the economic system, what we haven't gotten yet is that it should be accompanied by a crisis of ideas. That the stories that are being told about democracy are really about the swindle of fulfillment. The swindle of fulfillment. The swindle of fulfillment in that what, we, what, what the reigning elite in all of their diversity now tell the American people, if not the rest of the world, is that democracy is an excess. It doesn't really matter anymore that we don't need social provisions. We don't need the welfare state. That the survival of the fittest is all that matters. That, that, in, that in fact, society should mimic th those values in, in, in ways that suggest a new narrative. I mean, you, you have a consolidation of power that is so overwhelming, not just in its ability to control resources and drive the economy and redistribute wealth upward, but basically to provide the most fraudulent definition of what a democracy should be. I mean, the notion that profit-making is the essence of democracy, the notion that economics is divorced from ethics, the notion that the only obligation of citizenship is consumerism, the notion that the welfare state is a pathology, that the, any form of dependency basically is disreputable. 
and needs to be attacked. I mean, this is, this is a vicious set of assumptions. Are we close to equating democracy with capitalism? Oh, I, I mean, I think that's the biggest lie of all, actually. The biggest lie of all is that capitalism is democracy. We have no way of understanding democracy outside of the market, just as we have no understanding of how to understand freedom outside of market values. Look, uh, explain that. What do you yeah, mean? I mean, I mean look, I mean, I mean, you, you know, when Margaret Thatcher married Ronald Reagan, <laughs> metaphorically, metaphorically, two things happened. One, there was this assumption that the government was evil, except when it regulated its power to benefit the rich. So it wasn't a matter of smashing the government, as Reagan seemed to suggest. It was a matter of rearranging it and reconfiguring it so it served the wealthy, the elites, and the corporate, of course, you know, those who run mega corporations. But Thatcher said something else that's particularly interesting in this discussion. She said there's no such thing as society. There are only individuals and families. And so what we begin to see is the emergence of a kind of ethic, a survival of the fittest ethic, that legitimates the most incredible forms of cruelty, that seems to suggest that freedom in this discourse of, of getting rid of society, getting rid of the social, uh, that discourse is really only about self-interest, that possessive individualism is now the only virtue that matters. So freedom, which is essential to any notion of democracy, now becomes nothing more than a matter of pursuing your own self-interest. No society can survive under those conditions. So then why? When I talk about the urgency in your writing, your, your forthcoming book opens with this sentence, America is descending into madness. Now, don't you think many people will read that as hyperbole? Sometimes in the exaggerations there are great truths. And, and, it, and it seems to me that what's unfortunate here is that's not an exaggeration. Well, madness can mean several things. It can mean insanity, it can mean lunacy, but it can also mean folly, foolishness. You know, look at that craziness over there. Which yeah. do you mean? I mean, I mean the, the, it, it's certainly not just about foolishness. It's about a kind of lunacy in which people lose, them, lose themselves in a sense of, of power and greed and exceptionalism and nationalism in ways that so undercut the meaning of democracy and the meaning of justice that... You, you have to sit back and ask yourself, how could the following, for instance, take place? How could people who allegedly believe in democracy in the American Congress cut $40 billion from a food stamp program, half of which those food stamps go to children? And you ask yourself, how could that happen? I mean, how do you get a discourse governing the country that seems to suggest that anything public, public health, public transportation, public values, you know, public engagement is a pathology? Let me answer that from the other side. They would sure. say to you that uh, we cut Medicaid or food stamps because they create dependency. We close public schools because they aren't working, they aren't teaching. People are coming out not ready for life. No, no, that's the answer that they give. I mean, and, and it's a mock of their insanity. I mean, that, that's precisely a, an answer that, in my mind, embodies a kind of psychosis that is so divorced, is, is in such denial about power and how it works, and is in such denial about their attempt to, what I call, individualize the social. In other words... Individualize? Individualize the social, which, which means that all problems, if they exist, rest on the shoulders of individuals. You are responsible you're if you're responsible. poor, you're responsible if you're ignorant, you're responsible if exactly. you're sick. That's right. 
that, that, that the, the government, the larger social order, the society has no responsibility whatsoever so that you, you often hear this. I mean, if there are, I mean, if you have an economic crisis caused by the, the hedge fund crooks, you know, and, and millions of people have put out of work and they're all lining up for unemployment, what do we hear in the national media? We hear that maybe they don't know how to fill out unemployment forms. Maybe it's about character. You know, maybe they're just simply lazy. This line struck me, quote, the ideology of hardness and cruelty runs through American culture like an electric current. Yeah, it sure does. I mean, to see poor people, their benefits being cut, to see pensions of Americans who have worked like my father all their lives and, and taken away, to see the rich just accumulating more and more wealth. I mean, it seems to me that there has to be a point where you have to say, no, this has to stop. We can't allow ourselves to be driven by that lie, those lies anymore. We can't allow those who are rich, who are privileged, who are entitled, who accumulate wealth, to simply engage in a flight from social and moral and political responsibility by blaming the people who are victimized by those policies as the source of those problems. There's a new reality, you write, emerging in America, in no small part because of the media, one that enshrines a politics of disposability in which growing numbers of people are considered dispensable and a drain on the body politic as and the economy, not to mention, you say, an affront on the sensibilities of the rich and the powerful. If somebody had to say to me, ask me the question, what exactly is new that we haven't seen before? And I think that what we haven't seen before is an attack on the social contract, Bill, that is so overwhelming so dangerous in the way in which it's being deconstructed and being disassembled that you now have as a classic example you have a whole generation of young people who are now seen as disposable they're in debt they're unemployed uh, my friend Zygmunt Bauman calls them the zero generation mm. zero jobs zero hope zero possibilities zero employment uh, and it seems to me when a country turns its back on its young people because they figure in short-term investments, not long-term investments, they can't be treated as simply commodities that are going to in some way provide an instant payback and extend the bottom line. They represent something more noble than that. They represent an indication of how the future is not going to mimic the present and what obligations people might have, social, political, moral, and otherwise, to allow that to happen. And we've defaulted on that possibility. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the New Economy Coalition. Capitalism is integrated into every aspect of our lives, whether we know it or like it. It's a massive system, and it dictates how we interact with each other and how our government interacts with those outside our borders. So if we find it problematic, what exactly are we supposed to do? The New Economy Coalition has endeavored to answer that question by reaching out to more than 80 organizations such as 350.org, Friends of the Earth, Transition Town, and even the outdoor company Patagonia, as well as some amazingly smart individuals from diverse backgrounds and fields of study. Their mission is, quote, to build a new economy that prioritizes the well-being of people and the planet, unquote. It sounds simple, right? In a way, the motivation to do this important work is simple. We're in trouble as a culture and a planet, so we should probably get moving on sustainability while we still have the luxury of accomplishing that goal. As their website states, quote, the stakes are high, climate change is accelerating, inequality is at historic levels, the financial industry continues to teeter on the brink of collapse, threatening the global economy, and all the while our political system has proven incapable of affecting the structural transformations necessary to, quite literally, save the planet. The time is now for a new approach, a new economy, unquote. The good news is that if this work sounds appealing and you have thoughts to contribute to the formation of solutions, the New Economy Coalition has a conference this spring, the Common Bound Coalition, that anyone can attend, complete with scholarship opportunities. You can connect with other New Economy activists, participate in strategy discussions and workshops, and grow the community of people who want to change our system. The Common Bound Coalition convergence happens June 6th through the 8th in Boston. Registration hasn't begun yet, but you can sign up at neweconomy.net to be notified when that process begins. If you can't attend or conferences just aren't your thing, NEC is always looking for more coalition partners. They are building a national network of organizations, businesses, and individuals and want input from social justice groups, food co-ops, innovative public-private partnerships, worker cooperatives, environmental, racial, and economic justice organizations, anyone whose work is bridging the gaps our current system creates. NewEconomy.net also has a Send Us an Email tab to send suggestions of groups you think should be part of their coalition. You can also sign up for their newsletter to be updated as their work progresses, and as with all Save the Planet type groups, they can always use donations to fund their efforts. Clearly, the system is broken. How to fix it is going to take broad, ambitious thought and organizing. NEC is right. We should probably get started now. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage you know, you are a buoyant man, and yet you describe what you call a shift away from the hope that accompanies the living to a politics of cynicism and despair. Yeah. What, yeah, leads, yeah. You, what leads you to this? Uh, what leads me to this is something that we've mentioned earlier, and that is when you see policies being enacted today that are so cruel and so savage wiping out a generation of young people, trying to eliminate public schools, eliminating health care, putting endless p percentage of black and brown people in jail, destroying the environment, and there's no public outrage. 
There aren't people in the streets. You know, you, you have to ask yourself, has this, this market mentality, is it so powerful and ha- that it's become so normalized, so taken for granted, that the, the, imagine, the, the collective imagination has been so stunted that it becomes difficult to challenge it anymore. And I, and I think that leads me to despair somewhat. But I've always felt that in the face of the worst tyrannies, people resist. They're resisting now all over the world. And it seems to me history is open. I believe history is open. I don't believe that we have reached the finality of a system that is so destructive that all we have to do is look at the clock and say, one minute left. I don't believe in those kinds of metaphors. We, we have to acknowledge the realities that bear down on us. But it seems to me that if we really want to live in a world and be alive with compassion and justice, then we need educated hope. We need a hope that recognizes the problems and doesn't romanticize them and also recognizes the need for a vision for social organizations, for strategies. We need institutions that provide the formative culture that give voice to those visions and those ideas. You've talked elsewhere or written elsewhere about the need for a militant, far-reaching social movement to challenge the right. false claims that equate democracy and capitalism. Now, what do you mean militant and far-reaching social movement? I mean, what we do know, we know this. We know that there are people working in local communities all over the United States around particular kinds of issues, whether it be gay rights, whether it be the environment, whether it be you know, the Occupy movement helping people with Hurricane Sandy. We have a lot of fragmented movements. And I think we probably have a lot more than we realize because the press gives them no visibility, as you know. So we don't really have a sense of the degree to which these, how pronounced these really are. I think the real issue here is, you know, what would it mean to begin to do at least two things, to say the very least. One is to develop cultural apparatuses that can offer new vocabulary for people, where questions of, 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 where questions of freedom and justice and the problems that we're facing can be analyzed in ways that reach mass audiences in an, accept, an accessible language. We have to build the formative culture. We have to do that. Secondly, we've got to overcome the fractured nature of these movements. I mean, the thing that plagues me about progressives in the left and liberals is they're all sort of ensconced in these fragmented movements that seem to suggest those movements constitute the totality of the system of oppression that we're facing, and they don't. Look, we have technologies in place now in which students all over the world are beginning to communicate with each other because they're realizing that the punishing logic of austerity has a certain kind of semblance, that a certain normality that uh, in common ground that is affecting students in Greece, students in Spain, students in France. To and which, in this country. And in this country. And it seems to me that while I may be too old to in any way begin to participate in this, I really believe that young people have recognized that they've been written out of the discourse of democracy. That they're in the grip of something so oppressive, it will take away their future, their hopes, their possibilities, and their sense of the future will be one that is less than what their parents had imagined. And there's no going back. I mean, this has to be addressed. And it will take time. They'll build the organizations, they'll, get the, they'll, they'll work with the new technologies, and hopefully they'll have our generation to be able to assist in that. But it's not going to happen tomorrow, and it's not going to happen in a year. It's going to, you have to plant seeds. You have to believe that seeds matter, but you need a different vocabulary and a different understanding of politics. Look, 
The right has one thing going for it that nobody wants to talk about. Power is global and politics is local. They float. They have no allegiance to anyone. They don't care about the social contract because if workers in the United States don't want to compromise, they'll get them in Mexico. So the political, the notion of political concessions has died for this class. They don't care about it anymore. There are no com political concessions. The financial class. The, the financial class. The 1%. The 1%. That's why they're so savage. They're so savage because there's nothing to give up. They don't have to compromise. The power is so arrogant, so over the top, so unlike anything we have seen in terms of its anti-democratic practices, policies, modes of governance, and ideology, that at some point, you know, they feel they don't have to legitimate this anymore. I mean, it's because this, the, the contradictions are becoming so great. And I think all of a sudden, a lot of young people are recognizing this language, this old language doesn't work. The language of liberalism doesn't work anymore. You know, let's just reform the system. Let's work within it. Let's just run people for office. My argument would be you have one foot in and you have one foot out. I'm not willing to give up the school board. I'm not willing to give up all forms of electoral politics. But it seems to me, at the local level, we can do some of that thing. That people can get elected, they can make moderate changes, but the real changes are not gonna come there. The real changes are gonna come in creating movements that are long-standing, that, that are organized, that basically take questions of governance and policy seriously, and begin to spread out and become international. That is gonna have to happen. But here's, here's the contradiction I hear in what you're saying uh, that if, if, if you, you, you write about a, a turning toward despair and, and uh, cynicism right. in politics, can you get movements out of despair and cynicism? Can you get people who will take on the system when they have been told that the system is so powerful and so overwhelming that they've lost their, as you call it, moral and political agency? Uh, well, I, I, let me put it this way. What we often find is we often find people who take for granted the systems that they live in. They take for granted the savagery, the sort of things that you talked about. And it produces two kinds of rage. It produces an inner rage in which people blame themselves. It's so disturbing to me to see working class, middle class people blaming themselves when these bankers have actually caused the crisis. That's the first issue. Then you have another expression of that rage, and that rage blames blacks. It blames immigrants. It blames young people. It says they're not, it says about youth, it says youth is not in trouble, they're the problem. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden that rage gets displaced. The question is not what do we, where's, the question is not just where's the outrage, the question is how do you mobilize the rage in ways in which it's not self-defeating and in ways in which it doesn't basically scape, be used to scapegoat other people. That's an educational issue. That's, that should be at the center of any politics that matters. One of your intellectual mentors, the philosopher Ernst Bloch, said we must believe in the principle of hope. And you've written often about the language of hope. What does that mean, the principle of hope and the language of hope, and why are they important, as you see it, in creating this new paradigm, metaphor that you talk yeah, about? I mean, hope, to me, is a, is a metaphor that speaks to the power of the imagination. I don't believe that anyone can be involved in politics in a progressive way if they can't understand that to act otherwise, you have to imagine otherwise. What hope is predicated on is the assumption that life can be different than it is now. But to be different than it is now, rather than romanticizing hope and turning it into something Disney-like, right, it really has to involve the hard work of A, 
recognizing the, the structures of domination that we have to face, B, organizing collectively and somehow to change those, and C, believing it can be done, that it's worth the struggle. If, the str if, if struggles are not believed in, if people don't have the faith to engage in these struggles, and that's the issue. I mean, that working class neighborhood that I talked to you about in the beginning of the program, I mean, it just resonates with such a sense of joy for me, the sense of solidarity, sociality. And I think all the institutions that are being constructed under this market tyranny, this casino capitalism, is just the opposite. It's like that image of all these people at the bus stop, right? And they're all, they're together, but they're alone. They're alone. Los Angeles. I just got done listening to what I think is the most latest episode, uh, and I wanted to respond to the response to Javier's letter. Hi, Jay. This is Jamie in Cincinnati. I wanted to comment on uh, Javier's call about a boycott on drugs, um, and in my opinion, a boycott on drugs is impossible. And the idea of shaming drug users. Drug users will tell you that shame is a constant facet of their lives. Um, so good luck turning it up. It just doesn't work that way, and the suggestion is almost, almost offensive. The only thing that's slightly offensive is his response to Javier. The, the, the borderline dismissal of the point that Javier makes in his illustration by arguing that addicts can't control their behavior is offensive, or close to being offensive at a minimum. Uh, I think what the point that Javier was trying to make is that we are funding a war in a country that borders us and this war is completely or is, is on the on the brink of destabilizing the country and to ignore this fact is offensive and, I, and also the, the way in which the caller discusses marijuana and the boycotting of marijuana as being somehow simple and naive that was not Javier's point or at least I'm presuming that's not the um, Javier's point what I took from Javier's point with uh, from his letter was that you know just any purchasing of illegal drugs supports this narco war and he used the example of muling marijuana across the border to illustrate a, uh, a point that uh, many people make when they discuss marijuana, and that is that it's harmless, it's not that big of a deal, and he discussed and showed the ways in which marijuana, the purchasing of marijuana has an effect, has a much larger effect on the world, and uh, specifically in, in, in Mexico, and it's not as harmless as we make it out to be, and I think that's that's what's important, and that was the illustration he was attempting to make, that these narco, these narco traffickers, they start off mewing marijuana, and then they graduate into the protection rackets and into, and into the, the trafficking of a much harder drug. And so, again, I, I thought that, it, that the response was either lacking in an understanding of what Javier was, uh, the point Javier was actually trying to make, or just being dismissive of it, and uh, I found that to be almost offensive. I will say this, Javier's position is somewhat 
lofty and not necessarily attainable, but he makes an excellent point. And that is that you must acknowledge that if you are going to purchase an illicit drug, odds are the money that you spend is tangentially or, or six or seven people removed going to support a narco war in a court and in a country that borders us. And, you know, to, to pretend that like that isn't what's happening is offensive. And I think that there's a, there's a defense mechanism that comes up when people, when these, when these types of things are pointed out to them. When we, when things, when it's pointed out to you that yes, what you were doing actually has a detrimental effect on someone. Something that you thought was innocent and personal actually affects other people. And the fact that you are an addict and cannot control your behavior does not provide you sanctuary from the truth and the reality that your actions have effects on other people. Um, again, that's not to attack the addict, um, but it's really to point out that, that you know their actions do have repercussions and they're not absolved by you know being addicts. That said, love the show. Was really hoping that there was going to be much more discussion on the decline of the United States stature in the world. I guess I'll just have to call back to have that discussion. Anyway, have a good day. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Natasha from L.A. I just listened to your podcast on trans rights. I was an episode behind, and now that I'm caught up, I agree with the call on the subsequent podcast from IL, and I agree with most of what you said in your commentary as well, but would like to drive home the point of empathy a bit more. I know trans people, but none well enough to have discussed the intimate details of their lives, and that is probably because I've been raised not to talk about somebody's genitals until achieving a certain level of intimacy. And that level of friendship never happened with any of them because of circumstances beyond our control. I haven't seen the Katie Couric and Piers Morgan interviews that were mentioned in the show, but based on the reactions to them, I think both sides lack empathy. If I understood correctly, their transgender guests wanted to discuss the issues they face with regard to employment discrimination, rape, and other things like that. And certainly these issues are important, important to publicize in an effort to prevent such horrible things from happening. I may be idealistic, but I think most people would be against discrimination, discrimination and rape across the board. But that doesn't mean they won't be curious about what it's like to be trans in the first place. Or less idealistically, I think it's fair to say that they'd be more against discrimination and rape against trans people if they had their more fundamental questions answered by open trans people so that the cis community can see that trans people are really up against the law on a number of different fronts, both internal and external. The viewers to Katie Couric's and Piers Morgan's shows are no doubt going to have questions about the guests. And if Katie asks a question that's on 90% of the viewers' minds, does that make her a bad person? I didn't hear exactly what she asked or how she framed it, so I can't speak to that. It Was the whole process painful uh, physically for you to, to make this, you know, because there's a lot of surgery involved, a yeah. lot of drugs involved, mm -hmm. obviously, hormones, etc. Yeah. Was it um, was it challenging in that way? No, well, I've only I I haven't gotten a lot of surgery done. I've just I guess just I just did my nose. I just I got my breast done. Just little things that I've always wanted to do. Um, nothing that was you know that important, honestly. But um, the medication. I mean, you still is, your 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 private parts are different now, aren't they? I don't want to talk about it because it's it's still it's really personal, and. Um, I don't know. I just think I'd rather talk about my modeling stuff. I'd rather talk about being in W and being, you know, maybe an Italian right. Vogue and, and doing fun stuff and and showing people that 
after the transition, there's still life to live. There's still, you know, I still have my career goals. I still have my family goals. I want to have kids. I want to have more kids. You know, like I want to focus on that rather than what's down here because that's been spoken about so many times. You know, like in other interviews with other trans people, they always focus on either the transition or the genitalia. And I feel like trans people, there, there are more to trans people than just that. But maybe this is the sad fate currently facing members of the trans communities. As much, as much as it's a pain to feel like a dancing monkey, doing so will bring about greater understanding on the part of the majority of the cis population. It was once um, that huge deals were being made in the media about whether or not gay people were born that way or if they were making a choice. At that time, the gay community needed to put forth some confident representatives to say they were born gay, and because, they, because of it, they have suffered in various ways. When that happened, they simultaneously gained understanding and compassion. It infuriates me now that we're still having this conversation because I think we as a society should have moved on after covering it, but trans issues are still incredibly new to the majority of Americans. I don't think they can expect true understanding without first having given, without first giving others the chance to understand them. I've dated a black guy off and on for over 11 years, and he has frequently said to me, you just don't understand because you're not a black man. He's absolutely right that I'm not a black man and I never will be, but that doesn't mean I'm unable to learn about the African-American experience. If I were that close-minded, I wouldn't date him in the first place. I'm a white woman of primarily Eastern European descent, but that was four generations ago. Still, I apparently have a distinct look that causes people on the street to stop me to ask where I'm from, as has been the subject of much consternation and even some joking by Asians who have to put up with very similar things. When I say I'm from L.A. or give my specific neighborhood, it's inevitably met with, no, but where are you really from? I'm not so bold as to say I have an inkling of what it's like to be trans, but I can say I know from more than 20 years of experience that as much as I don't want to have that conversation, once I spend a minute or two giving people, sometimes complete strangers, my ethnic background, we can move on, talk about relevant things, and develop friendships. Say what you want about not wanting to be pigeonholed or not be, or it not being any of their business. You would be absolutely right. But being logically right isn't always the best way to foster relationships. Sometimes allowing people to put you in a neat box allows you to talk about the real issues. Thanks, Jay. I love your show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I have a couple of responses to the uh, the last voicemail that we heard about asking incredibly personal questions of trans people, you know, perhaps as a way of bridging that information gap and, you know, opening the door to the deeper, more important issues that need to be discussed. And, you know, the, the first thing that sticks out to me most prominently is that there's a huge difference between general information and incredibly personal details. So, you know, I think it would be great if, if a person is totally unaware of the process of transitioning, you know, learning what hormone therapy does and learning what gender confirmation surgery is and how it works. I, I think everyone would be well off to, uh, you know, to have a good working knowledge of what's going on. But that is a far cry from needing to know the intimate personal details of an individual and going so far as to actually ask them about their genitals at any time, much less on national television, you know? 
And as demonstrated in that interview, I played it in context during the call, you know, Carmen Carrera actually was, you know, if she wasn't happy, she was at least willing to, you know, answer those sort of general questions and about the process and even started offering some of the surgeries that she had had done, but then became incredibly uncomfortable when the, you know, you would think obvious, <laughs> obviously uh, over the line question was asked about, you know, basically, well, do you still have a penis? And, you know, that, that's why that, that interview was, you know, taken up by so many people as evidence of, like, the cluelessness of so many people who conduct these interviews. Um, but the second point on, on this I, I want to hope to illustrate is something that has solidified for me just really recently as listening to, uh, you know, these clips that were in that episode as well as a bunch of other stuff that I haven't had a chance to play yet – is uh, this is mostly coming from Janet Mock during her Piers Morgan interview, is that there needs to be a fundamental change in the conversation and that there needs to not be such a focus on the surgery because the surgery is not the defining moment that uninformed cis people have always thought it is. You know, it's not, it's not the moment that you then become the real gender you've always felt you were. Uh, so Janet Mock talking with Piers Morgan, you know, he would. He was asking her, you know, that he was focusing a lot right after the surgery. You know, did you feel different right after the surgery? When you looked in the mirror right after the surgery, did you finally feel like you were the person you were always meant to be? And Janet's point was, no, that happened a long time ago. I've, you know, been a full woman, felt completely like a woman, and you know, everything, you know, was. <laughs> You know, everything was as it was meant to be long before the actual surgery happened. So, I mean, to put it another way, the writing was on the wall long ago and the surgery was just crossing the T's and dotting the I's, you know. And so that that needs to be a fundamental shift in the conversation that, you know, surgery or not, that is not really the point because talking in, in a pre-op, post-op, uh, you know, paradigm is sort of continuing the gender binary concept, which is the sort of thing that needs to be broken down to fully understand what gender is all about anyways. If, you know, some people, as the image for that episode uh, was, you know, it said, not all people fit into the gender binary, get over it. So, you know, there there is such a thing as a gender binary, and a lot of people don't fit into it. So... The pre-op, post-op conversation just misses the point by such a wide margin that that's why it's doubly offensive. It's it's not just uh, you know it's not just incredibly personal. It's also really missing the point, and, and it's not just missing the point because it's more important to talk about how trans people are threatened with violence. It's also missing the point because that's just not how gender works. That's not the defining moment that we need to be focusing on when discussing transgender issues. So anyways, those are my thoughts on that. Hopefully, hopefully I know what I'm talking about. I, I feel like I know what I'm talking about, but feel free to correct me. Uh, the number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, 
itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And Stories and forget who it is we're